So this is about you were, but God. We're going to be doing that for a chapter, all right? That's going to be the theme for a whole chapter. You were, but God. So the you were part is what you were by nature, coming out of your mother's womb. That's what you were. It's what you were born with. That's like the original manufacturer's equipment. And then, but God, and that's what he made you when he regenerated you. When you believed on the Lord Jesus and repented of your sins. So that's what this chapter is going to be about. Now, I have to warn you, today we're in the you were side. So how many of you are ready for a really encouraging, bright, uplifting sermon about how bad we were? How bad we are. That's what it's about. But we need to hear and understand how bad we were so we understand our need for the grace of God. And so we understand how great is the grace of God and glorify and magnify Him appropriately. So let's start at verse 1. It's a very short verse. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. The word you means he's speaking to you. He's not speaking to some select part of humanity. He's not speaking solely of the particularly bad people in humanity. Not only speaking about the Charles Mansons, who Charles who had his minions slice up seven people one night and kill them, spent the rest of his life in prison, has now died. He's not just talking to the Charles Mansons of the world. He's talking to you to every one of us, to all of humanity. This is Paul's Holy Spirit-inspired description of the state of all humans before God regenerates their soul. And you were dead in the trespasses and sins. He chooses, from all the possible words he could have chosen to describe what we were like, he chose the word dead. Like, not bruised, not broken, not damaged, dead. What did the fall do to us? Dead. You cannot pick a more stark word than dead. There's not a worse condition for a human than dead. What could be worse than dead? Well, he's not breathing too well. That's not bad if he's still alive, but dead, that's as bad as it gets. Paul chooses that word to describe our fallen nature to teach us about what the fall did to us, to teach us how we're born. We are born dead to God, dead in our trespasses and sins. Now, using that word dead, what classic passage in the Bible is Paul working from? What classic passage does he have in mind? It's well known. What is it? Oh, sorry, that was trickier than I thought it would be. It's Genesis chapter 3 the passage on our fall. Let's read it for a moment, see where Paul gets the word dead. He's absolutely justified in using that word because Genesis 3, this is what God says, the Lord God took the man and put him in the garden of Eden to work it and to keep it. And the Lord God commanded the man saying, you may surely eat of every tree of the garden, but of the tree of the knowledge of good and evil, you shall not eat for in the day that you eat of it, you shall surely die. You've heard me 
say before perhaps, it's a Hebraism. It's the way Hebrew people would say it in Hebrew. It's dying, you shall die, which is just the way they would intensify it. Like we might say, you will totally die, man. That's how they would say that. Dying, you shall die. But the fact of the matter is, Adam and Eve didn't die for a long time after that. And so what does this mean when God says, in the day you eat of it, you will surely die? Well, he wasn't talking about their physical death. That would follow much later. That's the result. He was talking about a much more important death, and that is their spiritual death. Adam, you may eat from anything, but don't eat from that. And if you eat from that, you're dead. In that instant, you're dead, spiritually dead. What does that mean? You were alive. You were very much alive to God. You were very much spiritually alive. But when you decided to rebel against your maker, your very nature changed. And we cannot describe it more starkly, the difference more starkly than this. You were alive, and now you're dead. So there's been a fundamental change in human nature as a result of the fall, a fundamental change of our nature and how it responds or does not respond to God, to the gospel, to the things of God. And, and Paul uses the strong word and says, you're dead. Maybe one thing that dead means, maybe one of the most important things that dead means is we became, as a race, we became totally unresponsive to God. Remember what were some of the immediate results of the fall. Prior to the fall, Adam and Eve used to walk with God in the cool of the garden. It was their delight and their pleasure. After the fall, where do we find them? Hiding behind trees. That's what the fall did to their brain. They actually thought, oh, let's get behind a tree. God won't see us. And that's what, what the fall did to their soul and to their relationship to God. The one who, with whom they loved walking, now they're hiding from him, and they're terrified of his presence. That's what happens when you're spiritually dead. And dead means they were unresponsive to the things of God. When Paul says you were dead in your trespasses, not bruised, not a broken bone or two, the worst, most stark, most extreme term he could choose for the worst condition a human could be in, you were dead in your trespasses and sins. I told you this is going to be such an uplifting, refreshing message, right? But you need to hear it. Cornerstone people, we need to understand this doctrine. It's basic to the gospel and the cross. It's basic to salvation. You were dead, unresponsive to the things of God. Like, let's illustrate dead, just to make sure we get it. I'm sure you get it, but I want to throw in an illustration anyway. So here's a dead friend. He died. You passed away. But you take him with you to Texas Roadhouse, and you order for him and they bring him a sizzling ribeye, rare. And those mashed potatoes with that butter. They, have you had the butter on the mashed potatoes at Texas Roadhouse? And they have the, the ribeye and the mash. And you've got a great salad with blue cheese on it, of course, beside that. And you sit his right in front of him. What does he do? Not even a, because he's dead totally unresponsive to the, the stimulus of that sizzling steak. Take a dead man, sorry, going to heap it up a little bit here, heap it on a little bit. Take a dead man who has been a raving Ravens fan, but now he's dead. But you take him to a game, and we're playing against the Steelers, 
and there's like 30 seconds left in the game, and we just got the ball all the way down by their goal, and we've been working down and working down, and the crowd's starting to go crazy, and we're down to three seconds. We need a good pass right into the end zone. We need a guy to catch it and touchdown, and, and guess what happens? We get it, and the place goes berserko, and everybody's screaming and high fives and smacking each other, except for him. No, he was a Ravens fan, man. But he's dead. And he's totally unresponsive to the excitement, the euphoria of that moment. No response. Now, in the state of nature, that is us toward God. Present to a person in the state of nature the most scrumptious gospel meal Present to them the the glories of God's works in providence, what he's doing in the universe, and they should be jumping and leaping and praising God, and they're, they're blinking instead and saying, I don't see a God. What God? I'll make up my own God. I'll worship my own way. Show them the Bible, the word of God in print. And they say, what, what's that? I don't understand. It's old stories. It has nothing to do with me. This is our state before God but God, before he did that. Romans 5 is a crucial passage to explain this. I just happened to have some interaction with you, Tom, about Romans 5 this week. This is, I'm not getting after you. We differed a little. You're welcome to differ, brother. It's okay. I say that I'm only kidding when I say this. You're welcome to be wrong if you want to be wrong. All right. All right. I'm only kidding when I say that. Just poking fun. But Romans 5 might be one of the best places, one of the crucial places, one of the most important places that works out what the fall did to us theologically in the Bible. Let's look at Romans 5 together. Romans 5, 12 to 14. Therefore, just as sin came into the world through one man. So how did sin get in the world? One man. What was his name? Adam. We're talking about Adam. Uh, just as sin came into the world through one man, and death through sin, right? God said the penalty is death. You did it. Now death is here. And a little later, they died physically. And so death spread to all men because all sinned. The meaning of that sinned is in Adam, with Adam. When Adam did that, we did that. When Adam fell, we fell. Here's proof that that's what Paul means. Look at verse 13. He says, for sin indeed was in the world before the law was given. All right, when was the law given? 1440s BC. There were a lot of people prior to that. Guess what? Not one of them had a command from God. Sin was in the world, but it was before God's commands were given. It was before the law was given. None of them had a command like Adam, don't do this or you'll die. They had lived without commands. They, they were sinners. They did bad things, but they weren't breaking any commandment of God. And so we read on, but sin is not counted where there is no law. So take somebody a hundred years after Adam sinned and this guy sins. His sin is not counted against him because he's not breaking any law with a, command, with a result like, and if you do that, you'll die. That's what Paul's arguing. So, yet, verse 14, yet death reigned. Like, how many of them died? All of them. It reigned 
over, it reigned from Adam to Moses, even over those whose sinning was not like the transgression of Adam. So they sinned, but not like Adam. They sinned, but they didn't break any laws. They sinned, but they didn't break any commands because there were none, yet they died. So how come they died? And Paul's answer is, what he's driving at is, they died because they participated in Adam's sin. The change of nature that Adam experience is passed on down to all of them. That's why they sin. That's why they're not born holy and walking with God in the cool of the garden. No. And, and, and the penalty of Adam's sin is placed upon them because they were seen in Adam. And he's going to argue as he goes on, so it is with Christ. Christ's righteousness can be reckoned or counted to you. So Paul is teaching us in Romans 5 that to use the words of a catechism, we all sinned in them and fell with them in their first transgression. So you gotta understand that about yourself. You gotta understand that about humanity. We're not basically good, but maybe you know, our environment was bad and that led us to make some bad choices. We're not basically good and pure and holy, but maybe you know, we, we went through a bad circumstance and we didn't respond to it well. No, what I'm trying to tell you is that you are bad, and so am I. And this is our state before God took action, verse four, but God. This is our state. We were dead until God did something, verse four. He made us alive. Now, those of you who are biblically astute, and now I've got all your attention because you're like, oh, biblically astute, oh, that's me. So I got you all listening. You will, you will know what doctrine this is. So what, what doctrine do theologians call this? What doctrine are we working with? We're working with, well, regeneration is one of the doctrines in it, yes. But what comes before regeneration? What happened first? Depravity. Thank you. The fall. I was afraid people would all say the fall, and that'd be right. That's, we've been on the fall. But this is the doctrine of depravity, of human depravity, or as it is sometimes called, total depravity. What is that? Here's what it is not. Total depravity does not mean that all humans are as bad as they could possibly be. You couldn't inhabit the planet if that was the case. That's not what the doctrine means. Thank God that he in his common grace restrains sinners, even those who are not believers. He restrains them from the full realization of their depravity, from the full expression of their depravity. He holds humanity back from going that far so you can live on the planet. So total depravity does not mean you or anybody else or Charles Manson even is as bad as he could have been. He could have killed a million people. What does, total, what does the total part of total depravity mean? Total means it reaches every part of your being. It touches you, your whole person, everything about you. Well, what are our parts? What are we talking about? Well, your will is touched by the fall. You used to freely will only things that please God before your fall, theoretically. Adam did. But now your, your will is bound by your fallenness. Now your will is twisted by your fallenness, and you will messed up things, sinful things. 
The fall has touched your intellect. Again, what did Adam and Eve do? They thought, well, let's hide from God behind trees. <laughs> like, how dumb is that? But that was their immediate response. The noetic effects, the mental effects of the fall. Uh, how about your emotions? They're touched by the fall. Have you ever experienced unrighteous anger? Do you ever get, I just want you to know, I never do this. Do you ever get annoyed with your wife? Such a sweet woman. How could anyone get annoyed at her? Well, let me tell you. No. Unrighteous emotions. What about your body? We sin with our bodies, with food, with sex, with murderous anger, and we bludgeon somebody to death. What about our loves? We love the wrong things. And we fail to love the right thing, God, supremely. See, the fall, total depravity, doesn't mean you're as bad as you can be. It means badness has gone to every part of your existence. It has affected your whole man. No part of you is untouched by the fall. That's what total depravity means. Your heart, the thing that loves, the thing that ought to love God supremely, is touched by the fall. Here's how Jeremiah puts it. Let me put the verse up. Here's a cheerful verse for you. Jeremiah 17, 9. The heart is deceitful above all things and desperately sick. Who can understand it? So you need that as a piece in your personal psychology of your inner being. Oh, I have a heart that is deceitful above all things. Like, I can't know it, I can't trust it, I can't believe it, I better cross-examine it all the time, I better scrutinize it all the time, because it has been touched by the fall, it is desperately sick, who can understand it? Don't you be the one to say, oh, I can, I understand my heart perfectly. No. Our hearts, desiring the wrong things, lead us all over the place. Our hearts are touched by the fall. Factor that into your psychology of self. And let's circle back to your will. I mentioned your will is touched by the fall a minute. Your will is dramatically effect, affected by the fall. Your will died toward God. Now, I know some Christians slice and diced it in different ways. Bless them. You can be part of Cornerstone if you see this differently than me. But here's, here's a very sturdy position held by so many Bible scholars. Your will has been touched by the fall so that you, you have free will to do whatever you want, but because of your fallen nature, your will is bound by your nature. Let, let me explain what I mean. So let's think about cats and dogs. How many want to think about cats and dogs? Yeah, we like cats, we like dogs. For this illustration, I looked up cats so I could choose one that I thought was pretty cool. It's a Bengal. Oh, man, I'll take a Bengal kitty any day. They are gorgeous and striking and stunning. But anyway, but I'm a dog guy. Let's take cats and dogs. Now, someone knocks at your door and you have a cat. What happens? Nothing. <laughs> someone knocks at your door and you have a dog. What happens? A lot. Not your dog? <laughs> Somebody's shaking their head. A lot. Like, there's barking, there's running down the hall, there's getting inside the door, there's like, I'm protecting my territory, I'm protecting my people, I'm warning you, I'm in here. Like, a lot happens when, when somebody knocks at the door and you have a dog. 
Why doesn't the cat run down? The, it's not in his nature. He has free will to run to the door. Coax him. Come on, kitty, run to the door. He's not running to the door. His free will to run to the door is bound and determined by his nature, and his nature says, no, I don't run to no doors. What if we could do a surgery of natures, a surgery of souls, and we could take a dog's soul and put it inside a cat, and someone knocks at the door? Your cat would go to the door and go, I shouldn't have done that. That was goofy. Whatever a cat barking at the door would sound like, that's what would happen. Your cat has free will to run to the door. Nobody's stopping it. You can encourage it, but its free will is bound by its nature, and it is not in its nature to run to that door. You get it. So are we in our fallenness. In your fallenness, while dead in trespasses and sins, it is not in your nature to seek God. Fallen people don't do that. You don't believe me? You think I'm going out on an extreme limb here? Let's read Romans 3, 9 through 12. These are the words of the Apostle Paul, given by inspiration of the Holy Spirit. This is God's Word. And we read Romans 3, 9. We have already charged that all, both Jews and Greeks, are under sin, as it is written. Now we get an Old Testament quote. None is righteous no, not one. No one understands. Now, here's the phrase I really want you to see. No one seeks for God. Well, I believe in free will. Well, so do I. But their free will is bound by their nature, and their nature is fallen, and they are dead, unresponsive to the things of God, so that Paul doesn't hesitate to quote the Old Testament. No one seeks for God. All have turned aside. Together they have become worthless. No one does good, not even one. There's a cheerful verse for you. But it's true. And you need to know this. That's why it's in the Bible. You need to understand this about yourself and everybody else. No one seeks for God. You see, this is not like, this is far from what we often hear. A well-meaning would-be evangelist who wants to lead people to Christ. Bless him. And he probably is leading people to Christ. But he says, here's how the gospel works works. So you have fallen. It's like falling into the ocean, but you're swimming and treading water and you're still alive, but you're in the ocean. And then God reaches his hand down and it's just above the ocean. And if you just reach up real hard and take God's hand, then you can be saved. That's not the Bible's picture of how this works. The Bible's picture of how this works is you fell into the ocean, inhaled a whole lot of water and died. Eventually you landed on the bottom Fish came by and ate up your pieces. They have died. Other fish ate those pieces, and you've been spread to who knows where because you are dead. And the only way you get saved is you fell into the ocean and you're dead, and God reaches his hand down into the ocean and grabs you by the scruff of your neck and pulls you up and says, life, believe Repent, turn to the Lord Jesus Christ, and freely, by an act of your now unbound will, you choose God. Paul says there's none who understands. That's the noetic effects of the fall. There's none who will seek, none who seeks God. That's your heart. Unaided human nature, hearts don't seek God. 
So apart from the special saving grace of God, that's us. How great is God's grace to save sinners who wouldn't even seek him. Jesus tells us what's in our hearts. Get ready, you're going to hear it from Jesus. He, he gives us quite a list of what's in our hearts. You ready? This is going to be hard. Matthew 7, 21, following. For from within. He's answering the question, why do people do bad things? Here's why. For from within, it's in you. Out of the heart of man. It's not the, it's not the environment. You're a good person, but the environment corrupted you. It's what's inside of you. For from within, out of the heart of man come evil thoughts, sexual immorality, theft, murder, adultery, coveting, wickedness, deceit, sensuality, envy, slander, pride, foolishness. All these evil things come from within, and they defile a person. Say, no, no, I'm a, I'm a basically good person, but that environment defiled me. No, it didn't. You defile every environment into which you move. That's what the Lord Jesus said. All these evil things come from inside you. They're in there, and they defile the person. This is our state of nature. This is our state apart from but God, being rich in mercy, raised us up and seated us together in the heavenly places with Christ. I think you're probably getting the point here, and maybe I'm slathering it on a little too thick, but can you stand a little more? Psalm 51, a psalm of David. David has been very bad. He saw, he wanted, he took Bathsheba. He lay with her. She conceived, "Uh uh-oh, got to cover this up. Send Uriah out to the heat of battle. Let's have him cut down. He's cut down, murdered by proxy murdered in in the field of battle. And David's wrestling in Psalm 51 with, how could I have done that? And notice his answer. And it's not, I must have had a bad environment. I must have lacked good training. It must be that I fell in with that bad company. No, it's not that. Notice what David says, Psalm 51.5. Behold, here's how I could have done that. I was brought forth in iniquity and in sin did my mother conceive me. Now, lest you misunderstand, this is not a commentary on his mother. It's not saying, my mother was a sinner and I was produced as a result of adultery or something. That's not what he's saying at all. It's not a commentary on his mother. It's a commentary on him from the moment of his conception and from the moment of coming forth from his mother's womb. I was brought forth and it was me. It came out of me. I was brought forth from my mother's womb in iniquity. When you hold your little baby, just think of that. Oh, look at them, all bound up in their depravity and iniquity. I was brought forth in iniquity, and in sin, my sin, did my mother conceive me. From the moment of my conception, I was fallen. I was darkened. I was at enmity with God. I was dead in my trespasses and sins. And then I was born that way, and then I lived that way. And one God, one day I'm on the road to Damascus killing Christians, and God intervenes. God does interventions. And he intervenes in your life and shines gospel light into your soul, and you go, I see the light of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. I believe. How did that happen? And you spend the rest of your life studying apologetics to try and explain why you can believe this. 
That was intended to be funny. So this is, this is the Bible's doctrine of human depravity. Let's hear what some great people in church history, how they have expressed this doctrine. Let's go to the 1500s in Germany. Who's the greatest? There were a number of them. Who's the great one? Martin Luther. Yes, thank you. 1500s, Germany, Martin Luther. His book, The Bondage of the Will, is about this very thing I've been talking about. Your will is free, but it's bound by your nature. Well, how is it bound? Here are some Cliff Notes versions of what Luther claims in that book, The Bondage of the Will. Here's a quote. I'll have them for you. Yes, the human will is in bondage to sin because of our union with Adam in his fall. Adam did it. I blame Adam a lot. When bad things happen, I say, Adam. Debbie's heard me say that a hundred times. Adam. Or Luther says again, a fallen sinner is totally unable to cooperate with divine grace. Or elsewhere, to explain that, he says, salvation is exclusively the result of divine monergism. Monergism is one working. Synergism is two working. It's not you and God working. It's not you're in the ocean reaching up and God's reaching down and the two of you pull it off. No, it's you dead, eaten by sharks. Your bits have gone to the, to the far reaches of the earth. And God in divine monergism reaches down and grabs you and makes you alive in Christ. Again, Luther says, the regenerate and unregenerate act according to their respective wills. You have a free will but it's bound by your nature. When God knocks at the door, you don't go running unless he runs you, unless he turns you into a dog, a cat with a dog's nature, unless he makes you a human with a new nature that loves God, that loves Christ, that sees light. Let's stay in the 1500s and go over to Geneva in Switzerland. Who's the great guy there? John Calvin, there he is. Here's what Calvin says. Here's a quote. And certainly we have no solid conviction of sin unless we are led to accuse our whole nature of corruption. You don't really get sin unless you're ready to accuse your whole nature. Yes, everything in me is touched by the fall. My will, my intellect, my emotions, my body, my loves, the fall permeates my being. And if you don't get that, says Calvin, you don't have a solid understanding of, you don't have a solid conviction of sin, nor will you understand how great is your need for the grace of God, nor will you understand how great is the grace of God, nor will you love the verse four, but God. The London Baptist Confession of 1689, to me, the best confession of faith on the planet. Going to read from it. And I'll tell you what, there's some long paragraphs here, but I'm going to ask you to read the shorter. We're reading three paragraphs, short, long, short. Read the two short ones with me. I'll I'll clue you in, all right? Let's read the first one together. Our first parents, by this sin, fell from their original righteousness and communion with God, and we in them, whereby death came upon all, all becoming dead in sin and wholly defiled in all the faculties and parts of soul and body. See, I'm not telling you anything that Christians before us have not already put in print. And then I'll read the next paragraph. It's longer. They, that is Adam and Eve, being the root, and they, that root, by God's appointment, they, Adam and Eve, standing in the room instead of all mankind, the guilt 
of the sin was imputed, and the corrupted nature conveyed to all their posterity, descending from them by ordinary generation. What does that mean? Not Jesus. And they all, being now conceived in sin, and by nature children of wrath, the servants of sin, the subjects of death, and all other miseries, spiritual, temporal, and eternal, unless the Lord Jesus set them free. Third paragraph, read aloud with me. From this original corruption, whereby we are utterly indisposed, disabled, and made opposite to all good, and wholly inclined to all evil, do precede all actual transgressions. Now, I just got to tell you, reading that one pushed me over the edge. Now I'm really feeling the oppression of this. Are you? Like, this is really weighing on me. Wow. The effects of the fall, this is terrible. How bad this is. And so I need a little help. So let's go, and I had intended to go now to Ephesians 1, and let's just peek ahead next week, Lord willing. Ephesians 1, 4, and 5. We've got to read this now. We need some relief. Here's some relief. But God, I'll read it. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. See, now you're ready for the gospel. Now you're ready to understand God's grace and mercy. Now you're, under, you're ready to understand what regeneration is. Regeneration, what, what was there to regenerate? Well, everything about you needed to be renewed. What a passage. What is it that we need to happen to us because we're dead in our trespasses and sins? Let's jump over to 2 Corinthians 4, 6. And Paul writes, For God, who said, let light shine out of darkness, Genesis 1, creation, that same God who said that, has shown in our hearts to give the light of the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. Why have you believed because God shone light in your heart, in your heart. And he, and he showed you, he gave you the knowledge of the glory of God in the face of Jesus Christ. And all of a sudden, God beamed light and you went, I see Jesus as desirable, as beautiful, as I want him, as I bow to him, as I need him to be my savior, as I want him to be my Lord. Why did you do that? Because but God, while we were yet sinners. And let's go back to read Ephesians 2, 2. Um, Paul gives an extended, detailed analysis of what's going on with non-Christians. He says about your trespasses and sins in which you once walked. We all walked. What does walk mean? That's your manner of life. That's where you lived. All. Following the course of this world. Well, what's that? Well, the world is following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. In other words, it's all... It's all under the oppressive regime of the devil, and you lived in it, and you followed it, and you walked in it. Even if you got converted at a very young age, even if you can't remember a time when you weren't a follower of Jesus Christ, there was such a time. Ask your mother and your father when you scream as a little baby with murderous rage. I mean, like, it's a good thing they're helpless. Like, they'd kill you. 
They're so angry and out of control, they'd kill you. I can remember laying Nathan, our firstborn. We had him when we were 22. I can remember putting him on the changing table. He was like that big. And I'd say to him, now, stay there. Don't roll over. Stay right there. And I'd turn to get, and, I, and he'd I'd come back. He's looking at me going, he's that big. Following the course of this world, following the prince of the power of the air, the spirit that is now at work in the sons of disobedience. Just to enlarge on this a bit, I want to skip over to Ephesians 6, slide man. Ephesians 6, 11 and 12. This is what's going on down here. This is what we walked in. This is the influence we were under. Paul says, put on the whole armor of God that you may be able to stand against the schemes of the devil. For we do not wrestle against flesh and blood but against the rulers, against the authorities, against the cosmic powers over this present darkness, against the spiritual forces of evil in the heavenly places. There's a devil. Now the devil's in the picture. It's not just that you're fallen, but there's a busy devil who's here to destroy you, an enemy of God and an enemy of your soul. This is the state into which we're born. You might think this is an unnecessary aside, but I think it's a direct hit. I think it's an appropriate aside. Can you believe, like, is this the devil in the course of this world? Is this under the prince of the power of the air? Can you believe what's going on in our public schools where, where kids can tell their teacher, I'm not a male, I'm a female, I want to be called they, them, because I'm really two things, and, and uh, also... Um, I, uh, what else are they doing? Oh, there's gender change things they can have access to if they're a little bit older. And you're not allowed to tell the parents? To me, friends, that is satanic. That is devilish. That is evil. It's like, you're not the parents anymore. We're the parents. We have more control over your kid. We are allowed to know things about your kid that you're not allowed to know about. And we're there? I read the other day that, this is what this survey said, 58% of all public school teachers are looking to quit. Like they've had enough of this, well, we could call it stupidity, but it's evil. It's evil. Back to Ephesians, Ephesians 2, 3. No, I'm sorry, Ephesians 2, 4, and 5. Let's read them again, then we got to draw it to a close. But God, let's open that pressure relief valve after this whole sermon of how bad we were. But God, this is what's coming for us next week, people. Don't be like, I'm not going back to that church. (laughs) Now, all right, you, you sat through the hard part. The good part's next week. Come back. But God, being rich in mercy because of the great love with which he loved us, even when we were dead in our trespasses, made us alive together with Christ. By grace, you have been saved. We were but God. Again in the chapter, we were but God. Thank God for the but gods of the Bible. Now I have a closing question or two for you. So do you understand that that's your state as you came from your mother's womb? A fallen state, a totally depraved state, Do you you understand, this is why you need Jesus Christ. This is why you need God. This is why you need the gospel. This is why you need to turn 
to God and call upon the name of the Lord Jesus, because when you do that, he's giving you a new nature and making you a new creature in Christ Jesus. All things have passed away. All things, old, old things have passed away. All things are made new. This is why you need the cross. I want to ask you this question. Is there a but God in your story? I was but God. I was. And maybe I can't even remember when the but God happened because I was raised in gospel light. I was raised in a church. I was raised in a Christian family. And I don't know when I really believed. And I don't know when I was really regenerated. It doesn't matter. The important thing is, are you? Is there a but God? I know I was. I don't know when or how. I don't know when it changed. But I know there was a but God moment in my life when God beamed saving grace and light into my soul and I repented and believed on the Lord Jesus. Do you have a but God? The gospel is offered freely. Whosoever will, whosoever calls upon the name of the Lord, you can call upon the name of the Lord. And when you do, it's because but God because he moving, moved you. Let's pray together. Father in heaven, thank you for giving us this time in your word. We pray that it would bear fruit in our lives. We pray that people would be saved as a result of hearing the truth of your word. We pray that you would humble us as we understand how fallen we are. And we pray that you would Uh, exalt yourself in our understanding and in our souls and our hearts that we would understand the wealth, the the greatness of your rich mercy and your great love with which you, you loved us even when we were dead in Christ. We pray in Jesus' name. Amen. Just before we take communion, I've been asked to mention to you, other people write the announcements for us. Actually, Jenny writes the announcements for everybody. And uh, so she gives me my announcements and I have to obey her. She's my boss when it comes to announcements. And so what she told me to say to you this morning is, uh, we want you to know that on Sunday afternoons, a little team of us, we, we shoot a couple of videos here. They're short videos. They run about three minutes. One of them gets released on Tuesdays. The other one gets released on, on Thursdays. And their video is called Behind the Sermon. So I get interviewed and I get asked questions like, and it's stuff like what didn't make it into the sermon because you ran out of time? What did you drop? Uh, what made you take, choose to go that path? Why did you talk about that thing? So it's stuff that was behind the sermon. Uh, you might enjoy them. And again, they're about three minutes long, one on Tuesday, one on Thursday. Or you can access them on any of our media or if you're not on media, I don't blame you. If you're not on media, then on Thursdays, it comes out in our e-news. So just look at the e-news, like I looked at this week's Thursday e-news, and it's the second thing. The first one was the new sermon series. Second thing was behind the sermon. Right there's two links. That was the part one from Tuesday and the part two from Thursday. There they are. Check them out. See if they help you to get more out of the sermon as the week goes on. I also want to inform you, Jenny's going to scold me because she didn't write this one for me. I'm putting in my own. I want to inform you that we're shooting podcasts of various natures. The one I'm involved in is a longer podcast. We've shot three so far. The fourth one's about to come up. And I think after we've shot the fourth one, we're going to start releasing them one a month. And I encourage you just to be looking for those. Like, I'm really excited about the next one. I might ask that we make that the first one that goes out. But anyway, there's podcasts coming. So be prepared if you're interested. All right, enough of me. Pastor Jim, we want to take communion. All right, good morning, everyone. Thank you, Pastor Steve, for bringing us God's word this morning. May it 
accomplish his desire in our hearts today. So good morning, everyone. We've come to the time in our worship service where we gather together to celebrate the Lord's Supper. And for those who have put saving faith in Jesus Christ as their Lord and Savior, we invite you to join us in this act of Holy Communion. If you did not have an opportunity to uh, pick up the elements for communion on your way in this morning, you can do so now. And those are at the doors at the back of the sanctuary. So for our meditation this morning, I'm going to read from John chapter 15, verse 4. Abide in me, and I in you. As the branch cannot bear fruit by itself unless it abides in the vine, neither can you unless you abide in me. And we had our monthly men's breakfast yesterday morning, and we had an opportunity to to dig into Uh, this passage, dig into John chapter 15, and Jesus uses the metaphor of a vine and a branch to represent our union with him, and he uses the word abide, which means to remain steadfast and to to dwell with, and it's a a word that, uh, that gives you an image of being intimate with someone uh, in a long-standing relationship. And that is what Jesus is describing here in calling us branches that need to abide with the vine in order to receive sustenance and life and nourishment. And in this act of communion, this is a physical representation of that abiding This is the body and blood represented here of our Lord and Savior. As we take that in, he abides with us, and we abide with him. So I receive from the Lord what I also give unto you, that on the night he was betrayed, Jesus gave thanks, and he took bread, and he broke it, and he gave it to his disciples, and he said, 